Um, if you're a guest with us, we work our way through the scriptures. You happen to have joined us when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a very controversial chapter, a chapter that's interpreted in many different ways in the church. And being a Bible church, we're just going to try to understand it from what is written and not try to insert our culture or our preconceived mindsets or what we've grown up with. I grew up a Baptist, uh, studied for ministry in a Wesleyan church, spent time in charismatic movements, so I've got a little of everything. So, <laughs> But I, when I come to the word, I try to just say, what is God saying through this scripture? Not to make excuses for anything I don't like or I tr rather to try to understand why it is in me that I don't like this or that. So if you're from a certain theological persuasion, you might struggle with this passage and my interpretation of it. And I want to say before we start, everyone should follow their conviction. If you read it and you understand it differently, follow your conviction. But make sure your conviction is based on the word of God, not a personal opinion or a feeling or what you grew up with. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25. It's a much longer passage than we usually preach through, but um, I think you'll see why it kind of all fits together. It needs to be in one piece. 1 Corinthians 14, from verse 1 to 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. I'm sorry, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue with my, with my spirit, I'm sorry, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? when he doesn't know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, 
but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in chapter 12, um, Paul is, is, uh, has already addressed the importance of unity and equality among the believers regarding their spiritual gifts and that they were be, to be used in love to build one another up. In chapter 13, he stressed that the gifts needed to be expressed in love or they were meaningless. And now in chapter 14, he returns to the two of the gifts to describe their correct use when believers gather. So we've gone from uh, the specifics in chapter 12 of what the gifts are and kind of how they were being misused in the Corinthian church. 13, how unless they're done in love, it, it doesn't do anything, it's worthless. And now in 14, he's gonna hone in on a couple of gifts and how they should be best used. So verse one again, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So after telling the Corinthians about the necessity and the superiority of love, Paul didn't want them to think he was saying that the gifts are unimportant. So he instructs us regarding our attitude towards his last two subjects, pursue love, and desire spiritual gifts, both, but especially the gift of prophecy. The, the word pursue is used 77 times in the gospel, and in all but one of those cases, it's used in regards to following Christ, going after Christ. It implies discipleship. It implies being a follower. It expresses union likeness. So to pursue agape love, is to pursue a relationship with Christ, who is the source of that agape love. You cannot have Christ and not have agape, nor you, can you have agape and not have Christ. The goal of a first century disciple was to be like his rabbi. That's what it means to pursue, to become like, to, to they, they even would memorize whatever the, their rabbi said as he, whatever he did. He gave blessings, like he blessed the Lord when he woke up. He blessed the Lord when he ate his meal. He blessed the Lord after he ate his meal. He blessed the Lord when he goes to the bathroom even. And so the disciples would memorize all those blessings because they want to be like their rabbi. They were pursuing 
that rabbi. And here Paul is saying, we need to pursue that diligently, agape, that we might be more like Christ. We're also to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Now, especially that we might prophesy, he says. Now, if you haven't been with us, um, you know that we've talked about cessationists and we've talked about how uh, it doesn't seem, at least our interpretation, that, that the gifts have ceased because the gifts include administration, helps, service, uh, marriage is called a gift, salvation is called a gift, so we hope those gifts haven't ceased. Amen? Amen. So, um, have any of the other gifts ceased? Well, Paul lumps them all together, so our understanding is that they have not ceased. But here Paul is saying there's some that don't belong in the congregational setting. Um, to earnestly desire, that expression is one word in Greek. We would say to strive after something, to be jealous for it. And he's saying here we're to strive for the gift of speaking Holy Spirit-inspired words into a situation. That's my uh, understanding of the New Testament use of the word prophecy. To strive for the gift of speaking Holy Spirit-inspired words into a situation. This is more than just speaking the truth, more than just teaching. It's the appropriate expression of truth in a given situation. It's waiting on God to give us the right words. Um, one good example of that is, I, I believe, is in John chapter 8 when Jesus was asked, you know, uh, what are we to do with this woman? The law says stoner. And Jesus sits down and writes on the ground. What, what's he doing? Why is he pausing? Well, go down a few verses later. Verse, that's in verse 8. In 20, verse 26, he says, I don't say anything unless I hear from the Father. I only speak what the Father tells me. Jesus always spoke prophecy. The right words for the given situation from the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish I was like that. Amen? Don't you wish that every time you opened your mouth, you spoke what God wanted to say in a given situation? Woo, that would be awesome. And we're to, what does it say here? We're to strive for that. Uh, he, Paul recognizes that's, that's not accomplishable in this life, but we're to strive towards it. And it's, it's the most needed gift. So earnestly desire, it's the Greek word zelute from where we get the, the word zealous, right? It, it is, is to, to covet, to be desirous of, to be envious of, or to be jealous for something. And in this case, of course, the gift of prophecy. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Paul's about to contrast prophecy, and tongues. So Paul seems to be downplaying the gift of tongues as a minor gift in a gathering as because it differs from other gifts. All the other gifts edify the body of believers. Uh, unless, of course, that speaking in tongues is given with an interpretation. Some people refer to 
speaking in tongues as a prayer language. That is speaking to God in prayer. It's just between you and God. And I believe we can interpret the word mysteries merely as something that we don't understand. In other words, uh, unintelligible to the one who is praying. So how is that helpful? How is it helpful to someone if they have this gift of tongues? Now, the word tongue, by the way, just literally means the thing in your mouth, the tongue. But by extension, it means languages. How is it helpful if God gave us this gift of praying in, some, in a way that we can't even comprehend the words? I think a passage in Roman, Romans chapter 8 helps clarify. In 8.26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Could this mean that we don't have the words, but the Holy Spirit expresses through our lips our heart cry to God in words that are mysterious to us? That's going to edify the person who's praying because he's able to through the Spirit, express what's going on in his heart to God or the thanksgiving and praise that he's feeling, able to pour out their, their heart to God in praise or pain that's beyond the words that they can come up with themselves. So as we continue through this chapter, try to understand what Paul is teaching, regardless of the precise interpretation of the word tongues or whether you think it's it's ceased or whatever, Paul gets to the point in verse 4 that it only edifies the one speaking and is therefore not helpful in a congregational gathering like we're experiencing right now. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. This is the results of prophecy in the New Testament. It is different from the office of prophet in the Old Testament. Luke 16, 16 tells us the law, that is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, meaning Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth, were until John. John the Baptist is the last prophet, the last person to hold the office of a prophet. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. So these three descriptions are God's description of the fruit of the gift in the New Testament. Upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. If someone says they have the gift of prophecy, and, but the fruit of their words is something different from God's description here, they don't have the biblical gift of prophecy. So let's take each word to see if we understand correctly what prophecy does for the church. Upbuilding, it's an architectural word, meaning uh, a concrete structure to build, to confirm, or edify. A God-given prophecy is going to edify or solidify a body of believers. Encouragement is the Greek word parakalesis, which is also used for the Holy Spirit. We are encouraged by the Holy Spirit, sometimes through conviction to change, sometimes a confirmation that God is, is pleased with our actions, and sometimes that God knows what we're going through and is going to see us through. He consoles us in times of trial. 
Consolation is very similar to encouragement. In fact, I, I struggle to understand the difference between the two. It can also mean to comfort in the difficulties we face. It's one of the main attributes of God in the Old Testament, rahamim. Uh, sometimes translated tender mercies or compassion. A word from the Lord can console us, which is to help us bear up under stress. Now, when somebody has a, what is, a, is a, a prophecy, from my understanding of it, they don't have to say, as we often sometimes hear in charismatic church, thus saith the Lord, and, and then they have something. Well, maybe it's from the Lord, maybe not. We're going to see later that others are to judge what is said in the New Testament. Um, every believer, in filled with the Holy Spirit, will experience one or more of these effects from their words if it is from God, if it is a prophecy from God. Our mutual sense will be that God is encouraged us and comfort us, even if it's a word of correction. We'll come away sensing we're more established as a group of believers. And it can come to us in a number of ways. A timely song. Oh, I remember on one trip to Israel, we had this uh, autistic boy with us. And he loved my daughter. <laughs> he was infatuated with my daughter. But when we would go to a site in Israel, we'd, you know, someone would share about the site and they'd be talking about it. And then... Once the sharing was done, he'd always say, I have a song. And he would sing the perfect song. The, and he knew every word. And it was exactly what we could pull together to, to get the sense of that, what that sight was telling us. It was amazing. He had a gift of prophecy in song. So it can come to us in a song. It can come to us... Um, uh, in, in, as a call to worship, well, like Ron was doing, it can come in a servant, uh, sermon or a testimony. Sometimes the one delivering the message doesn't even know they're being an instrument of prophecy and God gets all the glory. Amen. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Again, it seems clear that this is a prayer language. They're praying directly from the Spirit of God in them what's on their heart without involvement of their mind. It's the heart crying out to God with the help of the Holy Spirit, expressing what they can't be put into words that we're familiar with. It might be anguish. It might be praise. It does edify the one praying, but no one else, as all the other gifts do, edify the body. Prophecy especially builds up others in the church as described in verse 3. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. There's that word again. That doesn't mean that tongues are of no value. Paul wished the whole body had the gift, nor does it mean that all received the gift. As we saw in chapter 12, God gives the gifts as he will. We saw, um, I'm sorry, our desire should be more towards those gifts that help everyone. If you're going to pray for a gift, pray for a gift that helps everyone. 
If tongues are spoken with an interpreter, then it edifies others because they can understand those words of praise. Now, I should add that there have been many attempts to prove or disprove the gift of tongues. Linguists tell us it isn't like human language. And of course, charismatics would say, of course it's not, it's a heavenly language, okay? A one man went to a congregation that was known for speaking in tongues and interpretations, and he spoke in Greek because he was a student of the New Testament. And the interpretation was something completely different from what he said. Now, what can we learn from that? We can't prove anything from that, but we can say that there are a lot of, um, how would you say it, uh, people that think they have the gift but really don't. It's coming from their mind or their own spirit. But that doesn't nullify the fact that Paul's saying here this gift really does exist. We'll see later in the passage that we do not take what is said in Scripture uh, we do not take what is said as scripture. In other words, if someone has an interpretation of a tongue or a prophecy, we're not going to write that down and add it to our Bibles. But we try to discern if it was indeed from God or from man. Now, the, And that's something we should always do in a worship service. You hear a sermon called the worship, you always take it to the word of God to see if those things are so. That's what the Bereans were noted for, right? They went to the scriptures to see if those things are so, Acts 17. The prevalence of the imitation of the gifts is probably one reason many churches are reluctant to give free reign to them being expressed. We should not be afraid of the gifts, but we should be discerning. As Paul encouraged us in this verse, desire the gifts that build up fellow believers. And now verses 6 through 12. I'm not going to read them through again. Uh, it's a long passage. But Paul's explaining about how tongues, if they're not interpreted, don't mean anything to anyone. If Paul came just speaking in tongues, the body's not going to be edified. They need to hear a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, understandable words that edify the body. So Paul drives home this, the point by illustrating it with off-key music. If the piano's playing in F sharp and, and uh, guitar's playing in E minor, it's just gonna sound crazy. No one's gonna get anything from it. Or an indistinct bugle sound. Or a speaker of a foreign language, all of it which communicate nothing to others. The off-key music sounds like chaos. The sounding of the bugle it's one of uh, Paul's frequently uses of military terms. Um, in military life, they sounded the bugle. If the bugle sound is indistinct, are you setting up camp? Are you going on the attack? You don't know, right? And then languages, foreign language was something really common in Corinth. It was a, uh, a city of great trade went through Corinth. And sometimes a ship would pull in and someone would yell out in Coptic, we have a load of grain and the guy on the port might answer back in Greek, I can't understand what the heck you're saying, and back and forth, they trying to find some language which they both have in common. So Paul's saying that's what tongues is like in a church without interpretation. 
Paul goes on to acknowledge their zeal for spiritual gifts, that is the Corinthian zeal, but he tries to direct it by adding that they should strive to excel in a manifestation of the Spirit that helps build others up. We gather to praise God and to grow spiritually. You can, you can pray in tongues at home as much as you want. You can even pray tongues in church silently. Verse 3, 5, and 12 repeat the theme of using gifts that build up the church. He's not talking about the physical structure like I, we began this with. He means each of us worshiping the Lord together need to be strengthened in our faith and our knowledge of God's word, encouraged, loved, and help to continue to follow the Lord, maturing together as we increase in Christ's likeness. Sometimes that means a loving rebuke to the one caught in sin. Sometimes it means giving help to someone in need. And sometimes it just means sharing what God is doing in your life or something new that you saw in God's word. I think Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 describes this really well. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, there's that expression again, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. See, that's Paul's goal. That's what he wants to, why he wants us to have those particular gifts so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, in agape. Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Ask God for the gifts that edify others. If, if God wants to convey something to you in tongues, that's for the rest of the congregation, ask for the interpretation. If it's for others, God's gonna give you the words so they can understand and be edified. As clear as this instruction is, you will find churches that find a time within their worship service for everyone to speak in tongues at the same time. I don't know if you've experienced that. Certain denominations do that. Where everybody is just, blah, 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 everyone at once is just this roar of noise. But obviously Paul's saying that should not take place. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Now this shows us that this prayer language is not understood by the person's mind. So if you have a gift, pray with your spirit, but pray also with your mind and sing with your spirit, both in tongues and in words you understand. This is, of course, in your own private time of worship. Verse 16 and 17, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? 
For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. Thanking God with your spirit in tongues cannot have an agreement from others because they don't know what you're saying. How can they if you don't even know what you're saying? Your heart may well be praising God in gratitude in deeper way than you can express in your native language, but no one else can join in your prayer of thanks. This is the fifth mention of the importance of gathering to build one another up, which certainly tells us this is Paul's theme in this passage. Gifts are not about the one employing the gift, but about growing together and maturing into Christ. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul's really downplaying the helpfulness of tongues in a congregational setting, but he doesn't want them to ignore the gift. He tells them that he's glad that he prays with the Spirit more than they do. Maybe that's one reason the Corinthians so highly prized it. They might have uh, seen Paul by himself praying in in tongues and thought, wow, if I could be really spiritual like Paul, maybe I, I want the gift of tongues. You know, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. In verse 5, he told them he would like for all of them to have the gift. It's not that the gift is unhelpful. It's just that it has its place and its purpose. And Corinthians and the church today need to understand this truth so that there's this not, not this cacophony of noise in the worship service. Paul's leading up to the next paragraphs that's going to deal with uh, order in the worship service. Verse 19, nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongues. So here's the qualifier. Is the gift done in public or private? A prayer language is personal and for private prayer. But in the congregation, we should speak so that others are edified. That's why we're, we gather together. Verse 20, brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. God gave us a mind. Reason and logic, it's a gift from God and a valuable tool. And when used properly, it helps clarify situations, even helps in understanding the scripture. Paul was a mature thinker, thinking. His letters demonstrate mature thinking based on the truth of the word of God and the understanding of what God had said in the Old Testament. It's unreasonable to think everyone speaking in tongues in a worship service is going to help the body grow. Both new and old believers need clear biblical teaching. Our minds need to be renewed by the word of God. Uh, since I preached on uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7, the Holy Spirit's been using that passage again and again to correct my thinking and my behavior. That's something that I can share with others that'll help them as well. But my time of praying in tongues only benefits me. There's an interesting principle here. Think clearly, he's saying, in a mature way about the scripture and how God wants us to speak and act but there's no need to delve into, uh, into the nature and depths of evil in its multitude of behaviors and temptations. I've known uh, uh, officials of the law that have to do that for their job. 
and they say it's so difficult for them to get things out of their mind. And Paul's saying, you don't need to do that, unless that's your job, of course. But stay away from that, that depths of evil about thinking about it, understanding it, and instead focus on the word of God. Verse 21 through 23. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? Now, I had for years, I had a difficulty comprehending what this was saying because it almost sounds contradictory when he says that uh, that the unbeliever will think you're mad when they hear the babble of tongues, but in verse 22 saying it's a sign for unbelievers. But the secret to understanding why it sounds contradictory is in the verse he quoted, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Paul's applying a verse from Isaiah regarding God's warning to the nation of Israel of a foreign language uh, a foreign nation coming in and, and the Israelites not understanding what they were saying. And even though it came to pass, they were conquered by this nation. They heard these foreign tongues. They still did not repent. That's Paul's point. Even if they hear you speaking in tongues, it's not going to touch their heart and cause them to repent. In other words, they'd hear, but there'd be no change of heart. On the other hand, prophecy or proclaiming the word as directed by the Spirit is meant to build up believers. The gathering of believers we call the churches is not generally the place where we bring unbelievers to find Christ. That's done one-on-one -on -one as we share the love of Christ with those we meet. The because the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit, their foolishness to him. So bringing a, church, uh, to a person to church is not the main way pe people come to Christ. But if they do happen to attend, they may be convicted by an inspired proclamation from the word of God and repent. The reason so many churches started offering salvation message each Sunday is that people in the congregation were taught that your job is to bring people to church and the pastor will win them to Christ. That's not the way the early church functioned, as we'll see in the next paragraph. Many churches expect the pastor to be the soul winner and members just invite uh, those that are not saved. People are won sometimes in that manner but and hear the gospel and the spirit touches their heart, but that's not the main reason we gather. We gather, as Paul has said five times in this passage, to be built up or matured in Christ. We're to be equipping one another to be a witness to those that we meet during the week. Speaking forth the word of God is for those who will receive it and be edified by it. Those people are believers. The unbeliever doesn't recognize the word as God's authority. A very recent Gallup poll found that only 20% of people claiming to be Christians believed the Bible was the word of God. 
It's important as ever that the word be proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit so people might be convicted that it is indeed the pure word of God to us today. Verse 24 and 25, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Prophecy, speaking forth the word at the direction of the Holy Spirit can convict the seeking unbeliever. The believer sees the word bringing them under conviction and, and to repentance and transformation and recognizes the power of God's word. In other words, prophetic expressions will call that person to repentance, whether it's from a revelation of the goodness of God or exposure of the sins that keep them from God. The holiness of God always reveals by contrast how sinful we are. We experience a natural sense of unity when we're with like-minded people. Have you ever experienced that at a game, an event, or uh, something where the, lots of people are together to focus on one thing? Enthusiasm is contagious. And a similar thing happens in a supernatural way when the word is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit to a church body. Together, we sense God is speaking. And I can tell when it's happening because from my vantage point, I can see everybody completely focused. There's an unusual silence. And I sense it in my spirit as well. God has our attention and he's impressing something on our hearts. And during those moments, even unbelievers among us know that God is really among us. Paul's telling us something very important about what should happen when we gather together to worship our focus should be to hear from God. Our part in the worship service is to see that all can hear from God. That means helping with childcare or in children's church, ushering, greeting, singing with our whole hearts, praying for each person who has a part, as well as everyone that's attending, giving of our time and our financial support and bringing that seeking soul that we've been witnessing to getting to know others and their needs. It's that body that Paul described in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, working together to see that all, all are built up to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And we each have a part in it. Do you know what your part is? Are you letting God work through you in service to others so that the body of Christ might be built up? I'm gonna ask Jill to bring a closing song and then I have a word of prophecy for you as an illustration for those to whom it was meant. Let's stand and sing.